My name is Dwayne Brown, NASA Headquarters Office of Communications. I want to welcome you today, where you will hear not only details about an asteroid that will pass close but safely by Earth on February 15th, but how it presents a unique opportunity for researchers to observe and learn more about asteroids. You'll also hear about the Near-Earth Object, or NEO, observations program, overall detection of, of objects such as asteroids and comets and other things on a global scale, and a future NASA mission to an asteroid in 2016. For our TV correspondents, we are at this time running B-roll material, animation, and sound bites on our NASA TV feed. Uh, please check uh, the satellite coordinates to obtain that uh, video if you like. We also uh, visit the website, www.nasa.gov asteroidflyby, all one word, www.nasa.gov asteroidflyby. Lots of detailed information on the asteroid that will pass by Earth on February 15th. And, of course, follow the conversation on Twitter and Facebook. NASA has a Twitter feed devoted to providing information and answering questions regarding near-Earth asteroids. That account is at Asteroid Watch. And it will be providing updates on DA-14 throughout the week. So if you don't already follow at Asteroid Watch on Twitter, you may want to start. will be a lot of information and conversation on that. Uh, we'll be monitoring the hashtag asteroid and DA-14 and responding to questions and correcting any erroneous information. And Asteroid Watch posts regular updates on near-Earth asteroids as well as comments of interest. And, if, and, in fact, we have two comments coming up this year, and stay tuned for updates on that. The replay number for this telecon in its entirety will run for a week. That number is 866-443-1214. Again, that's 866 866- 443-1214. And finally, our participants will be using graphics for their presentation. Many of you all are probably already on that site, but for the folks who are not on, uh, I had the, um, a link to obtain that site is http colon slash slash numeral1.usa.gov slash x is in x-ray, the numeral 9, q is in queen, h is in harry, W as in what, and numeral nine. Again, http colon slash slash one dot USA dot gov, G-O-V slash X nine Q H W nine. We have a lot to cover. Let me introduce you to today's panelists. First, you will hear Mr. Lindley Johnson, Program Executive, NEO Observations Program, NASA Headquarters in Washington. Dr. Tim Spar, Director, Minor Planet Center, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Don Yeomans, manager, the NEO office at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Dr. Amy Meinzer, principal investigator for NEOWISE Observatory, also at JPL. And Ed Bayshore, the deputy principal investigator for OSIRIS-REx which is the asteroid sample return mission I mentioned earlier, launching in 2016, and he is from the University of Arizona in Tucson. So let's get started, and I'll toss it to Lindley. Thanks, Dwayne. Uh, I appreciate you all dialing in uh, today to hear us uh, uh, tell you about this remarkable close approach of a relatively small asteroid that's designated 2012 DA-14. Uh, we're here to tell you uh, what we know about this object and, and how we know it, uh, I have colleagues with me here from across the near-Earth object community, research community, uh, both in, uh, in the United States. Uh, Tim Spar, uh, as Duane said, is the director of the Minor Planet Center, and that's the worldwide hub for all observations on small bodies in the solar systems, asteroids and comets. All come into uh, the Minor Planet Center. Uh, it's the internationally astronomical union designated uh, repository for for the data, and they do the initial orbit uh, determinations for us. Then Don Yeomans, as the manager and chief scientist at NASA's NEO program office at JPL, heads up the uh, high precision orbit determination and uh, any uh, determination of impact probabilities, uh, both uh, to the Earth and, and any other planet in the solar system as well. The Near-Earth Object Observation Program was begun by NASA uh, 15 years ago now, and its original goal was to find all of the uh, 
one kilometer and larger asteroids that might have some potential to impact the Earth. And we've uh, done a pretty good job of that. Uh, our estimates show that we've found uh, about 95% of those larger asteroids that uh, uh, come close to the Earth. Uh, but we've also found lots of smaller objects uh, like DA-14, and we continue uh, our uh, detection and observations of these, of the, of these objects. Uh, our program is now focusing on those smaller objects, which uh, although they wouldn't uh, be a global catastrophe if they impact the Earth, they would still do a lot of regional uh, destruction. Uh, we uh, have made a lot of progress uh, over the decade uh, in finding these objects. We probably would not have, have found uh, DA-14 uh, ten, uh, 10 years ago uh, as we have and not known about this close approach. But we still have a lot of improvement to do in finding the, all of the uh, hazardous asteroids. So uh, two of the folks uh, on today are going to talk about those future capabilities uh, and our efforts to learn more uh, about the these uh, asteroids. Uh, Amy Meinger uh, is going to talk about uh, space-based infrared capabilities and talk about a prototype system that we've already used to, to find a lot of, of uh, asteroids. And then a Ed Bayshore will talk about the OSIRIS-REx uh, mission to a near-Earth asteroid. So uh, with that, our turning over to uh, uh, Tim Svar, who uh, is at the Minor Planet Center, and, and will tell you about how we get all this information in on these objects. Thanks very much, Lindley. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. This is a really neat event. Uh, the cornerstone of the Near-Earth Object Observations Program has been the efforts responsible for discovering and monitoring NEOs. Survey is a multi-step process that begins with discovery and ends with an orbit. And an orbit's just a mathematical description of the asteroid's path around the sun. With a good orbit, we can predict the motion of an asteroid in the future and assess its potential to be dangerous to the Earth. Obviously, we'd like to have as much time uh, in advance if we know about a dangerous object uh, so that we could study the object and also assess any sort of deflection options that we might have. The first step is discovery, and that involves uh, telescopes taking nightly sweeps of the sky, and these are dedicated NASA-funded telescopes. Um, they take multiple images of the sky over a period of an hour or so, and asteroids are detected simply by their motion against the background stars. So if you pull up uh, the image SPAR-1, I've got some photographs of the actual telescope facilities that do the discovery. So in the upper left-hand corner there, you have the linear, the MIT Air Force linear system uh, that's been discovering asteroids uh, since about 1998, and they were the leader for a while. In the bottom left, you have an image of the Catalina Sky Survey. That's run by the University of Arizona, and that operates several telescopes around Tucson. Uh, the right-hand side is the PANSTARS Air Force University of Hawaii telescope. Uh, they've been a major player recently. And in the center of the image, we've got uh, the NEOWISE, or the WISE spacecraft. And uh, that was really our first um, serious space-based effort to discover asteroids, and that was a wonderful mission. Uh, we do have some older surveys that are no longer operating as discovery programs. This would include the Space Watch Project at the University of Arizona, the Lowell Observatory LONEO survey, which was operated in Flagstaff. We've also got the NEAT Caltech program that was run at Mount Palomar. We have future plans to use a data stream from the Air Force uh, Space Surveillance Telescope, and uh, that should help us out quite a bit. These NASA surveys I've described are responsible for about 90% of the NEO discoveries in the last few years. Now, the object we're talking about, 2012 DA-14, was discovered by the Sagra survey in Spain. That's a space debris survey that was originally operated by amateurs and is now professionally funded. So all moving object data taken worldwide is reported to the NASA Near-Earth Object Observations Funded Minor Planet Center, or the MPC. That's where I work. This is at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here the observations are analyzed further. If the observations cannot be linked with a previously discovered object, and we think that it's a new near-Earth asteroid, we update a special website here, and this allows other observing sites around the world uh, to get us some follow-up observations that are needed to better determine the orbit. Now, until a few years ago, we relied almost exclusively on a worldwide network of amateur scientists to obtain follow-up for us that led to orbits. 
Um, if you pull up slide uh, SPAR-2, this is uh, an image of the world with the observatories that provide near-Earth object observations in yellow. And uh, we put in red where uh, 2012 DA-14 was discovered. And I've coded in blue the main NASA surveys in the desert southwest. Now, today, these new discoveries are generally quite faint, and they're sometimes a million times fainter than anything you could see with your unaided eye. Uh, as a result, we've had to go to larger telescopes to obtain the follow-up observations that we need. And these are professional-class telescopes around the world, and uh, many of them are operating with support from the NASA Near-Earth Object Observations Program. After a few days' worth of observations, objects that represent no threat can be given a designation, and these objects will be incidentally observed in the future by the other surveys. However, there are objects whose orbits bring them close to the Earth, and we give these special attention. The Minor Planet Center works closely with the scientists at JPL's Solar System Dynamics Group to obtain the most precise orbits possible. Now, if an object is large enough and it can come close enough to the Earth's orbit, it is labeled a potentially hazardous asteroid. This designation qualifies the object for very special treatment and monitoring, and these PHAs have their orbits studied closely by Don Yeomans and his group at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and I'm going to hand off to him now to talk about his program there. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, as Tim noted, uh, one of the focus areas for the Minor Planet Center are these so-called near-Earth objects. And uh, an object of particular interest uh, at the moment is this 2012 DA-14. So if you want to call up uh, Yeoman slide one and, and begin that uh, spiffy little animation that we created, uh, You'll note that it's uh, an asteroid whose diameter is roughly half a football field in length, and it will make a very close Earth approach on 2013, February 15th, passing safely between the Earth's surface and the Earth's ring of geosynchronous communications and weather satellites. As Tim noted, 2012 DA-14 was discovered at La Sagra in southern Spain, and although its size is not well determined, this near-Earth asteroid is thought to be about 45 meters in diameter. It will pass within 17,200 miles of the Earth's surface on February 15th. However, this asteroid's orbit is so well known that we can say with confidence that even considering its orbital uncertainties, it can pass no closer than 17,100 miles from the Earth's surface, so no Earth impact is possible. At the same time, it will pass 5,000 miles inside the ring of communications and weather satellites in geosynchronous orbit about the Earth. The likelihood of an asteroid colliding with an Earth satellite is extremely remote, but even so, we are working with satellite providers to make them aware of the asteroid's path near Earth. On February 15th, the asteroid will travel rapidly from the southern evening sky into the northern morning sky. Its closest Earth approach occurs at 2.24 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, when it will be moving nearly the angle subtended by two full moons per minute. That's very fast for a celestial object. The asteroid will not pass within the Earth's shadow, and during its closest approach, it will be observable in a dark sky from Eastern Europe, Asia, and Australia. For these regions, the asteroid will achieve a brightness of about 7.5 magnitudes, somewhat fainter than naked eye visibility. This is a record predicted close approach for a known object of this size. On average, one would expect an object of this size to get this close every 40 years or so. An actual Earth collision by an object of this size would be expected about every 1,200 years on average. So if you want to go to Yeoman's slide two, this is a schematic diagram of the sky survey process. The observations are sent to the Minor Planet Center, as Tim noted. Uh, they, in turn, send the data and preliminary orbits to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and also our Italian colleagues in Pisa, Italy. And then once we agree on uh, the close approach information, that information is automatically and very quickly put out to the world on our uh, website. Among the activities that we carry out within the Near-Earth Object Program Office at JPL are the coordination of near-Earth object discoveries and the metrics that allow us to track our progress. As uh, we noted, precision orbits of all near-Earth objects are automatically updated as new data arise from the Minor Planet Center, and each object's motion is then carried forward for about 100 years to investigate upcoming close-Earth approaches. 
For those objects that will make future close Earth approaches, we compute Earth impact probabilities with our automatic sentry system. These results are then automatically posted to our website. As I noted, the website posting is occasionally delayed a short time if the impact probability is significant. In these cases, we consult with our Italian colleagues who are doing a parallel process to make sure that our respective results agree before posting the information. The Italian group operates an orbit computation center in Pisa, Italy in parallel with our own. Once our two groups agree, the results are sent out. In an effort to improve our predictions, we're actively conducting research in a number of areas, including improving the observational data by correcting the reference star positions and improving the dynamic models used to model the motions of comets and asteroids. And we're also studying the optimal strategies for deflecting any objects that are found on an Earth-threatening trajectory. Our outreach website, as Duane mentioned, Asteroid Watch provides an introduction to near-Earth objects, including answers to frequently asked questions, interviews, and a widget for personal computers that provides information on the next five close Earth approaches. So you can be the first on your block to know what's coming. We currently have close to 1 million followers on, on Twitter. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Amy Meinzer, who's going to discuss the the exciting results that are forthcoming from the infrared and radar techniques. Thanks, Don. So there are alternatives to the ground-based searches uh, that Tim and Don have mentioned. And in late 2009, uh, NASA launched a satellite called WISE, which you can see a picture of in the slide titled Mindzer one WISE's uh, primary mission was to just provide a survey of the whole sky in thermal infrared wavelengths. And these are wavelengths of light that human beings perceive as heat. Now, it so happens that observing in thermal infrared is actually a good way to find near-Earth objects. Uh, because they get close to the sun, they are warmed by the sun, and therefore they glow brightly at thermal infrared wavelengths. And you can see an example of this in the slide titled Mindzer 2. Now, this shows a picture uh, taken by WISE at infrared wavelengths. The asteroids are cool, so they appear as red dots, and uh, the much, starter, much hotter stars appear as, as blue dots. Now, if you look in the image titled Mindzer 3, you can see some of the asteroids uh, picked out and highlighted in the white boxes. The video that's shown in the slide titled Mindzer 4 shows an example of what a bright, highly reflective asteroid and a dark, uh, very, uh, like a piece of coal asteroid would look like as if, if it were viewed by a visible light telescope, which sees reflected sunlight. And this means that the dark asteroid is going to appear fainter to, to this kind of telescope observing at these wavelengths. But because an infrared telescope is sensing the heat emitted by the objects, the dark asteroid appears just as bright to the infrared telescope. So that's one advantage of, of doing these surveys at infrared wavelengths. And furthermore, a, a telescope that's orbiting uh, in space can observe objects that are interior to the Earth's orbit much more efficiently than ground-based telescopes can, because ground-based telescopes usually have to look uh, at night. So NASA's Near-Earth Object Program Office has work closely with the WISE team to, to harvest the data from this mission to, to search for new near-Earth objects and to you know, gather more information that's allowed us to estimate our progress uh, toward the overall goal of finding as many of these ha potentially hazardous objects that we can. And you know, aside from providing copious information about asteroids in general and, and near-Earth objects in particular, uh, the NEOWISE project has, has really demonstrated the potential for a long-duration mission to search for smaller objects that might come close to the Earth. And these objects are interesting, of course, because uh, not just the hazard that they might represent, but also because they may represent very uh, attractive targets for future exploration, uh, particularly with astronauts. So there is another technique that astronomers can use to, to obtain very detailed physical measurements of asteroids if they come close enough to the Earth. And if you look at the final slide there, Mindzer 5, I'm going to show you a movie of what radar imagery looks like. So this is where we actually take a telescope and bounce radar waves off of an asteroid. And this provides us a very precise estimates of an object's orbit. And in certain cases, like with 2005 YU-55, uh, you can actually see very detailed information about its shape and its surface properties. So these observations are made possible uh, with funding from the NASA Near-Earth Object Observations Program. And they involve the use of uh, radio telescopes at uh, Arecibo in Puerto Rico and the JPL-managed Goldstone telescope, uh, telescope Complex in California. And in addition to providing you know, really improved orbital data, you can see from the movie that uh, radar gives us really neat information about the shape and rotation of the asteroids, 
We can even observe the rotation directly. And these are some of the best data that you can get short of actually flying a spacecraft to an asteroid like this. But we, have to, we can only collect it when the asteroids are sufficiently close to the Earth. Now, uh, the movie shows the 2005 YU-55, as I mentioned, which passed close to the Earth in late 2011. And NASA's Goldstone Telescope showed us from these images that the object is about 400 meters in diameter. So that's about the size of an aircraft carrier. And, of course, you can see in the imagery that there's a surface that's you know, covered with craters and boulders. And the smallest feature in these images is about 4 meters in diameter. So that's about the size of a car. Now, we'll be observing 2012 DA-14 after its close approach with radar to gather more information on its orbit and its physical characteristics, but it's, the images that we're going to gather are not going to be as detailed as the ones that you're seeing in the movie for 2005 YU-55 because 2012 DA-14 is a much smaller object. So, uh, you know, but it's going to still greatly improve our understanding of, of where it's going to go in the future. So where are we today with our understanding of the population of, of hazardous asteroids? Well. Uh, over the last 10 years of ground-based observations, uh, we've vastly increased our understanding of the population of the largest objects. And, you know, our inventory of the main belt, the asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, has really increased dramatically by about a factor of five. So with that, I'm going to hand off to uh, Ed Bayshore, who's going to tell you more about the study and characterization from a new upcoming mission. Thanks very much, Amy. Um, you know, this is all really cool stuff I'm, you know, we're hearing about. And, and the goal of these programs, especially the goal of the survey program, has been to find uh, hazardous objects early enough so that we have time to carefully study it and we can design a strategy to deal with the threat. And if time allows, we'll certainly want to launch a uh, space probe to the asteroid to study it up close. So if you would uh, like to click on the movie Bayshore 1, you'll see an animation of, a, of an upcoming mission that we're planning. Uh, it's a, a mission to launch a probe to a near-Earth object. Uh, we'll launch in 2016, and we think this is going to be a pathfinder for all future missions to asteroids. Uh, the University of Arizona here in Tucson, along with the Goddard Space Flight Center in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland, and the Lockheed Martin Company in Denver have partnered together to develop and operate this mission. Uh, we call it OSIRIS-REx, and it will arrive at asteroid 1999 RQ-36 in late 2018, where we will uh, study it for about six months, and then we're going to carefully approach the asteroid to obtain a sample and return it here to the Earth in 2023. And by the way, this is going to be the largest sample of an extraterrestrial object returned to Earth since the end of the Apollo missions over 40 years ago. Now, OSIRIS-REx is a science mission. Um, RQ-36 is a primitive asteroid that we believe is composed of materials that are almost identical to those that were present when the solar system was formed about four and a half billion years ago. So with a sample, we'll be in a much better position to address many of the fundamental questions about the original chemistry of the solar system, including the sources of organics and water that gave rise to life here on Earth. But our mission will also be pioneering some really important technical capabilities that we'll need to work near asteroids. The force of gravity from the asteroid that we're going to visit is very tiny. And for OSIRIS-REx, the force of sunlight pushing on the spacecraft will be comparable to the gravitational force from the asteroid. And so it's going to be kind of like trying to handle a small boat in the wind, and that's not always easy. It can complicate things. And so we're developing techniques and processes that we'll need to, be, you know, to, uh, to actually move around an asteroid and operate around an asteroid, particularly uh, if we send a probe to uh, an asteroid that might be on a collision course with the Earth. Um, and as, by the way, the target asteroid for OSIRIS-REx is also a near-Earth object, and it would be very useful for us to be able to improve our understanding of the threat that that asteroid represents and to improve our ability to predict the orbits of other asteroids, other near-Earth asteroids. Uh, and uh, our mission will help us do that by obtaining a more precise understanding of something called the Yarkovsky effect. So if you'd like to, uh, to uh, click on Bayshore 1, you'll see a small animated cartoon of how the Yarkovsky effect works. And it's really very simple. Uh, uh, it's a force that's created by the absorption of sunlight and the re-radiation of that energy as heat. And the heat acts like a tiny rocket thrust that can literally push asteroids out of otherwise harmless orbits and initiate their transport into the inner solar system where they can become hazardous. So aside from understanding how near-Earth objects are formed, the OSIRIS-REx mission should help us improve our long-range predictions of orbits 
of these objects and allow us to more accurately calculate the likelihood of a collision. And so in addition to the vigorous programs of discovery and close study of near-Earth objects that NASA's been, uh, that been, NASA's been conducting for over 15 years, the OSIRIS-REx mission will visit one up close to study the forces that make them dangerous in the first place, and will also bring back a sample for scrutiny here on Earth. Our adventure starts in 2016, and I invite you all to stay tuned for that. So with that, I'll throw it back to Lindley Johnson, who will make a few concluding remarks before we take questions. Okay, thanks, Ed. Uh, I think uh, my colleagues have given you a pretty good idea of all the activities that NASA has ongoing uh, to uh, find, track, and characterize uh, near-Earth objects and asteroids. Uh, but uh, we're also doing uh, work in the international community. And uh, one of the reasons that we had this uh, teleconference a, a week ahead of the close approach is that uh, Tim, Don, and I are going to leave the country. Uh, no, we're not going to go into hiding, uh, but uh, we are uh, headed uh, uh, to actually going to get closer uh, to the close approach point of, of the asteroid because we're going to Vienna, Vienna, Austria, to the United Nations uh, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Scientific and Technical Subcommittee meeting uh, this February. Uh, uh, we are part of a, a near-Earth object working group under that subcommittee. Uh, the Working group has been uh, working over the last few years on recommendations to the International uh, com uh, Committee uh, to set up uh, uh, activities like the an International Asteroid Warning Network that uh, will be based upon the existing capabilities that we have here uh, with NASA and uh, with the international space agencies like uh, the European Space Agency and the uh, uh, Japanese Space Agency, uh, to work together on our uh, detection and exploration of these objects. Uh, we also want to establish a, a forum for the international space agencies to be able to, to discuss and plan potential responses uh, should we find an asteroid that is on a, uh, a threatening uh, trajectory to Earth. Uh, we will report uh, those activities uh, up through the uh, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space uh, and if there are any uh, asteroids that are on a, a threatening tra trajectory, uh, that information will uh, go to the international uh, community through uh, COPIUS uh, and the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs. Um, so with that, uh, Duane, I'll throw it back to you to wrap us up. Okay, we're going to get right into the Q&A, so I'm going to toss it to our operator with instructions, and uh, we will uh, start that process. Operator? Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touch-tone phone. Please unmute your phone, record your first name, first and last name, and affiliation when prompted. To draw your question, press star 2. Our first question comes from Lisa Krieger with San Jose Mercury News. Your line is open. Yes, thank you very much. Um, tell us, if you could, how many miles per hour are the asteroids traveling? And if it was to collide with the Earth, uh, what size the crater would be, and how many people would potentially be killed? Don, you probably got the, the <laughs> highest accuracy information for that. Uh, let's see. At least for the velocity, I wouldn't try the last one. Um, well, let's see. The velocity at Earth close approach is 7.8 kilometers a second. That's uh, roughly uh, eight times the velocity of a bullet from a high-speed rifle. So, uh, as we noted, this object's orbit is so well known that uh, there's no chance of a collision. Uh, but should something of this size hit, uh, it would be comparable to what happened in June of uh, 1908, uh, the so-called Tunguska event, when a similarly-sized object uh, collided with uh, the Earth over Russian Siberia and uh, caused uh, significant ground damage, leveling millions of trees for over 820 square miles. So it's a significant amount of energy from an object of this size, uh, should it hit. Our next question comes from Nell Greenfield-Boyce with National Public Radio. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks. Um, 
you mentioned that uh, this question is for Don Geomans. Um, you mentioned that an asteroid this size would strike once every 1,200 years on average, but there have been other estimates I've seen that have put it more like once every um, few hundred years. So I wondered if you could speak to that um, discrepancy. Um, and the other question I had, maybe for um, Lindley Johnson, is um, you talked, you know, there's a lot of discussion of different asteroid related things NASA is doing, but you know, there are a significant number of unknown objects this size out there, and I wondered if NASA was planning or doing anything that would provide a comprehensive survey of, um, of asteroids this small that could pose a threat. Thank you. Well, let me, this is Don Yeomans at JPL. Uh, let me start by um, addressing your, the first part of your question. Uh, uh, the estimate uh, for impacts of an object this size are about 12, 1,200 years on average. Uh, uh, about 10 years ago, we would have said uh, about every 300 years or 400 years on average. Uh, but in the interim, uh, in the last couple of years, Alan Harris, uh, under a NASA contract, has looked at the so-called size frequency distribution and noted that uh, in the size ranges from about uh, 20 to 30 meters on up to about 150 meters or so, there seems to be a, 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 a dip in the in the curve. That is, there's fewer of those objects than we once thought. So that really is the reason for uh, the discrepancy you noted. Uh, if this press conference were being held 10 years ago, we would have said uh, once every 300 years on average or so. Uh, but now uh, I think it's fair to say it's, it's not not that frequent. Uh, this is Lindley Johnson, and, and for your second question about what uh, NASA is doing about finding uh, uh, more of the uh, smaller uh, asteroid population, uh, we are continuously looking for additional capabilities uh, to, to be able to do that, uh, given the budget that we have. But uh, we are looking at uh, all kinds of uh, uh, partnership possibilities uh, across uh, universities and space institutions uh, and with the Air Force. Uh, one of the capabilities that uh, we'll be bringing on uh, this year is with the DARPA Air Force uh, Space Surveillance Telescope. Uh, uh, they're providing the data uh, that they collect on, on asteroids. Uh, we are in a Space Act agreement uh, with the uh, B612 uh, foundation and their proposed uh, building and, and operating a, a space-based uh, capability. Uh, we are also looking at other options for uh, space-based uh, capabilities, uh, which is what it will really take to uh, find uh, the uh, smaller population of, of these asteroids, as, as Amy pointed out, uh, being able to detect uh, uh, these objects uh, uh, is much easier to be done in the in the infrared region of the spectrum, and to do that, you you really need to get out into into space. So, we are continuously looking at uh, ways to improve our capabilities. Our next question comes from Brian Vasek with the Washington Post. Your line is open. Yeah. Hi. Thanks. Uh, can can either I, I think this is a question for either Don or. Tim, uh, can you explain why, just what the what the factors involved are for why the the telescope in Spain found this rather than one of the um, Space Watch telescopes that NASA funds? Um, kind of what, what, yeah, what are the kind of reasons for for the, you know, why they found it in Europe instead of over here in, uh, in the U.S.? Uh, this is Tim Spar. I'm I'm happy to answer that. Is that okay with you, Don? Absolutely. Okay. Um, with an object like this that makes a, a pretty rapid appearance and brightens very rapidly, um, it can could have been found by anyone that was scanning the sky. And it was detected incidentally within a few hours of discovery by the other teams. And uh, one of the things I didn't get to show is the Minor Planet Center maintains a sky coverage webpage that shows you how much the sky is covered on a nightly basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And if you looked at that, you would see multiple coverages of pretty much the entire observable sky every month. And, um, you know, I, I, I presented the number that 5% uh, of the NEOs are found by other teams, and this is one of the 5%. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jeff Hall with the Washington Post. 
Our next question comes from Marcia Dunn with Associated Press. Your line is open. Thank you. I had two questions. I'm, I'm wondering if any of the panelists are anticipating a sky is falling outbreak um, in the next week. Um, have these sort of things uh, cropped up in the past, and is that what you're expecting again? And, and also, you know, there's the, there's the vision calling for as astronauts to visit an asteroid. Um, how important is that? Do you think that effort is getting its fair shake by NASA and the administration? Um, this is Lindley Johnson and NASA headquarters. Our, our take this question. Um, first of all, no, we don't expect any sky is falling thing uh, uh, related to this. Uh, you have to keep in mind that small uh, meteorites, what we call meteorites, are, are hitting the Earth all the time. You're, you can go out any night and, and see those, and those are very small uh, grains of uh, sand uh, size uh, objects, uh, and, and some larger. Um, uh, you know, fist uh, rock size are coming and hitting the earth every day. But now there will be no mass fall of, uh, of uh, rocks from space uh, uh, in the next week. Uh, as far as the um, uh, future plans uh, that uh, may be uh, visiting a, an asteroid uh, with human crew, uh, NASA is looking at uh, many different options. Uh, 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 for the future exploration of the solar system and uh, ways to uh, to carry out that plan. Our next question comes from Alan Boyle, NBC News. Your line is open. Thank you. I had a quick follow-up question, and uh, for probably for Lindley, and then one for Don. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I think you mentioned that you were cooperating with the DARPA Air Force effort, and I think DARPA Air Force. Uh, is uh, working with the Allen Telescope Array, and so I just wondered whether uh, you would be using data from the Allen Telescope Array for uh, for tracking near-Earth objects. And then the other question would be, uh, Don, you had mentioned that you were working with satellite operators and that there was a, a remote chance that there might be some sort of um, effect uh, or at least something you'd have to watch for. Could you provide a little more detail on what you're telling satellite operators and whether you've assessed the chances that as this object comes through, there might be a risk or might be a need for any sort of change in operations for satellites? Uh, Lindley Johnson here at NASA headquarters. Uh, uh, no, the Allen Telescope Array is not one of the uh, uh, systems that we're working with the Air Force uh, and, and DARPA on on this. I, do, I don't, uh, I can't remember the specifications on that exactly, but I don't think it has the limiting magnitudes that are needed uh, for this. It's the Space Surveillance Telescope, uh, which the current uh, uh, first system is down in near Socorro, New Mexico, on, on White Sands uh, Missile Range. Uh, and Don, you want to uh, handle the second question? Okay. Uh, yeah, Alan, the, uh, this asteroid seems to be uh, passing in the sweet spot between the uh, GPS satellites and the uh, communications and weather satellites. So it's really extremely unlikely that uh, any of these satellites would be threatened. But uh, we have been working with some of the satellite providers, giving them files of the asteroid's position is a function of time, and they can take these files and match them against their own files of the, where the, their satellites will be as a function of time, and, and just do the math and figure out uh, how close the asteroid will pass to their particular satellite. And, and no one has uh, raised a red flag, uh, nor will they. I, I certainly uh, don't anticipate any problems whatsoever. Our next question comes from Irene Klopp with the Reuters. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, I have two questions, I think, both for Don. Uh, th the first is, um, have you or anyone gone back to see if this asteroid has, in the sometime in the past, made a even closer approach to Earth? And uh, on a similar vein, um, what are the calculations for when and how close it will come to Earth in the future? Thanks. Uh, yeah, we routinely uh, run the motions of these objects backwards and forwards in time. Um, this particular object uh, currently has a, an orbital period of one year, which is, of course, the orbital period of the Earth around the sun. So it has been 
getting close to the Earth uh, for quite a while. Uh, although this this uh, this coming close Earth approach is the closest predicted for this object, uh, both in the past and in the future. Now we don't take the motion back more than a uh, hundred years or so because. Well, the orbital uncertainties uh, don't really allow us to do that with any fidelity. Um, and your your second question was uh, again. Uh, when's it When's it coming back, and how close will it come ah. in its next encounter? Right. Well, the close approach uh, on the fifteenth uh, will perturb its orbit so that uh, actually. Instead of having an orbital period of one year, it'll it'll uh, lose a couple of months in its orbital period and become what we call an, an Aten. Uh, that is, its orbital period would be less than that of the the Earth. So it won't come back in the Earth's neighborhood anywhere near as frequently as it has in the past. And uh, we ran it out for about a hundred years, and there is no closer approach uh, in the foreseeable future than the one that's coming up. So it's uh, the Earth is going to uh, put this one in an orbit that is considerably uh, safer than the one the orbit it has been in. Our next question comes from Naomi Seck with AFP. Your line is open. Hi there. You said um, it would be visible from certain parts but not with the naked eye. Can you describe what people would be able to see and what kind of equipment they would need to see the, the path? You want to do that one, Tim? Or um, yeah, I think I could I can handle that one. This is Tim Spar Minor Planet Center. Um, the the word asteroid means I believe it means star like. So um, what you would you know look what you would see through a small telescope would be something that looked just like a star, just a, a small point of light, and it would require I suspect it would require a, you know a, a telescope a few inches in diameter, you know a small telescope but uh, probably bigger than a toy. And all you would really see would be a point of light that moved against the background stars. Um, you wouldn't see any color. You would certainly would not see the shape of it. It'll be a pinpoint, um, and it would be moving. That's about it. Uh, let me follow up. This is Don Yeomans again. Uh, so, but it, for observers in the U.S., it'll, this close approach will take place during the daytime, of course, so it'll be tough for U.S. astronomers. Uh, so you'd really like to be located in Australia when you could observe this close approach during in a dark sky or possibly in Asia or uh, Eastern Europe. Our next question comes from Jim Snyder with Bloomberg News. Your line is open. Uh, hi, thanks. I think my question was mostly uh, answered, but uh, do you know what the satellite or the asteroid is made of? Like what material? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, it would be most likely uh, silicate rock, but uh, we don't really know that for sure. There's some unpublished data suggesting that it's uh, a so-called L-type asteroid that uh, is is of the S-type class and hence silicate rock, but uh, that's that's unofficial and very uncertain. So. Uh, probably silicate rock, but we really don't know. Okay, thanks. Lindley Johnson with a follow-up to that. Uh, uh, as this close approach uh, occurs and uh, we track and observe the asteroid going out, there will be a number of observatories that will be trying to collect the, the data uh, to allow us to, to determine more what uh, the, uh, this asteroid is like and what it's made up of. So, So stay tuned. Our next question comes from Robert Lee Holtz with the Wall Street Journal. Your line is open. Thank you. Uh, two quick questions. One, uh, if and when will we be able to expect uh, a radar image of this uh, object? And secondly, uh, more broadly, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the planetary processes, uh, solar system dynamics that produce this kind of object and set it into Earth's path? So this is Amy Meinzer from JPL, and I can answer a little bit about this. The radar observations are obviously, they're, they're easiest to acquire when the object is, is making its closest approach. So they'll be trying for it uh, right around the time of closest approach next Friday. So 
we'll see what they get. Um, like I said, they will not be able to get images with as much beautiful detail as they were able to get for YU55, because even though the object is getting close, it's, it's considerably smaller than YU55. YU55 was about 400 meters in diameter, and this object is about 10 times smaller than that. So it's probably, uh, you know, they, these things, it's just not going to be likely that they could get uh, very beautiful imagery of it. But the radar observations are going to do a, a great job of refining our understanding of its trajectory so that we can improve predictions into the future, and we, we certainly want to do that. And they may also give us some information about its shape and rotational uh, state, which is also valuable. And I'm sorry, can you repeat your second question? Uh, yes, uh, I don't know if you can, if I'm back on the uh, line again, but if uh, I am, what I was asking is uh, if you all would be kind enough to give us a little sense of the planetary processes that create these objects and then set them in Earth's path. Right. Okay, yes, this is Amy again, and I will, I'll attempt to answer. My colleagues will chime in as they like. Uh, so most asteroids in the solar system are, are stable, and they are in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and they stay there for billions of years in most cases. But occasionally, some forces, some are gravitational and others are non-gravitational, like that slight push from solar radiation that, uh, that Ed Bayshore described, the Yarkovsky force. These can kind of act to, to drift objects in from the main belt, and sometimes they hit gravitational resonances, which act like little flippers in a pinball machine. And sometimes these can inject asteroids from the main belt into near-Earth space. And, and this, this process happens uh, relatively rapidly. While the main belt asteroids have been there for billions of years in most cases, the near-Earth object population is, is, by comparison, relatively young. Most objects that enter the space around Earth's orbit uh, don't last there very long. They stay for maybe a few million years to a few tens of millions of years. Now, we know that that means because uh, this population is so young and the main belt asteroids are so old, that means there must be a continual supply of objects seeding in from different places in the main belt. We also know that some fraction of the near-Earth objects are cometary in origin, so meaning they come from more distant parts of our solar system, and they also make their way into near-Earth space. And so we're really trying to understand the exact mechanisms by which these migrations happen, and that's one of the many reasons we like studying the near-Earth objects. Uh, and this is Ed Bayshore. Uh, I'm just going to chime in really quickly. Uh, as I had mentioned before, one of the, the goals of the OSIRIS-REx mission is to measure this Yarkovsky effect much more precisely. Uh, just about a year ago, one of our team members, Steve Chesley from uh, JPL, did a really exquisite set of measurements using radar data and came up with a preliminary estimate for the kinds of forces on our asteroid, RQ-36, that, uh, that we're talking about. And he equated it to uh, the force that you feel when you hold a couple of grapes in your hand. Uh, so, but that force applied over millions of years can, can literally move these, these mountains of rock around. And so uh, you know, it's really quite important for us to make sure we understand this, uh, this force uh, much better because we believe it will improve our ability to predict the orbits of these hazardous objects. And this is Amy again. That is also another reason why we like to gather physical properties of them, measurements of their size and their composition and their spin state, in addition to just their orbital information, because it allows us to predict how these non-gravitational forces are, are going to work much better. That's something we've been working on with the NEOWISE data and also with the radar data. This is uh, Lindley Johnson, NASA headquarters. While my colleagues were talking, I took the opportunity to take a quick look at the uh, radar scheduling uh, at Goldstone, uh, the uh, radar pass uh, uh, actually will not occur until after the closest approach. It's, uh, the object has to come into the uh, above the uh, uh, equatorial plane uh, for Goldstone to be able to see it. And so the observations will actually take place on the 16th, starting on the 16th of February uh, through the 20th. Uh, we may have some preliminary images on the 17th or 18th. Uh, but, of course, the full analysis uh, uh, won't occur until a few days after uh, they've completed the, the radar passes. Our next question comes from Todd Halverson with Florida Today. Your line is open. Uh, thanks very much. Um, and these are for whoever might want to take them. Um, I'm wondering what your estimates are for uh, how often an asteroid of any size might 
come this close to Earth and how often you would anticipate an asteroid of any size to impact the Earth. And the second question I have is uh, I'd like to see if I could get somebody to compare the size of this asteroid to the size of the so-called dino killer. <laughs> um, yeah, well, as Lindley noted, uh, space rocks hit the Earth's atmosphere uh, on a daily basis. Basketball-sized objects come in daily. Volkswagen-sized objects come in every couple of weeks. So uh, the small ones hit rather frequently. Uh, as you get to larger and larger sizes, the number of objects out there gets less and less. So you would you would uh, understand that uh, as you get to larger sizes, the frequency of hits uh, goes down. So for DA14, we think uh, a reasonable estimate is about 1,200 years on average. Uh, that's pretty large uh, uncertainties on that. Uh, 1,200. Uh, now, the size of uh, 2012 DA14 is also uh, quite uncertain. Uh, we don't really know its reflectivity. We know how bright it is, but we don't know how uh, its reflectivity. Is it, is it dark? Is it light? Uh, so we estimate about 45 meters in, in diameter, and the, uh, the, the object that uh, caused the uh, Cretaceous tertiary extinction event 65 million years ago that took out the dinosaurs was uh, was about 10 kilometers, so substantially larger than 45 meters. Our next question comes from Bill Harwood with CBS News. Your line is open. Thanks. Well, let me ask another doom and gloom question uh, along those lines. And Don, this, these are for you. It's just back from earlier. Um, is there a, assuming it is a silicate rocky asteroid is there a an energy range if you if an object like this did hit us in terms of megatons or something people might be familiar with that's number one yeah number one question would be about 2.4 megatons of uh, equivalent energy that's 2.4 million tons of tnt so it's it's substantial it's co comparable to the tunguska event uh, in 1908 Our next question comes from Elizabeth Lando with CNN. Your line is open. Hi, thanks. Um, I was wondering, are there other asteroids that you are watching that could potentially come even closer to Earth? Well, this is Don Yeomans again. Uh, there are lots of asteroids that we're watching that uh, we haven't yet ruled out an Earth impact, but all of them have a, an impact probability that is very, very low. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the, there are some smaller ones that have gotten closer. And uh, in fact, there was one that hit uh, in October of 2008, uh, uh, but it was much smaller, about a four meter sized object. So we're saying that uh, for objects of this size, uh, maybe 40, 45 meters in diameter, this is the closest uh, predicted uh, Earth encounter that uh, we're aware of. Our next question comes from Miriam Kramer with Space.com. Your line is open. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm curious, uh, where exactly is the closest approach point um, that the asteroid will come to? And um, when was the last time that we were able to observe a close approach like this, if ever? Well, uh, let's see. I think this is Don again. Uh, I think it's uh, the close approaches would be over uh, Indonesia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, once again, there really hasn't been a close approach uh, that we know about for an object of this size. Again, uh, there have been closer approaches by smaller objects, uh, but not of this size or larger. And our next question comes from Bill Harwood with CBS News. Your line is open. Thanks. Sorry, um, I got cut off a little bit earlier. Don, just two more real quick ones from you. You were mentioning Tunguska, but if this is a silicate-type body, would you, you'd expect an air blast versus a crater, would you not? And I have one more follow-up. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, it would be like Tunguska. It would come down into the Earth's atmosphere, and the pressure on the front side would be that much greater than the pressure on the back side. So it would pancake and explode, 
before hitting the ground, uh, much like the Tunguska object did. Uh, you'd have to get a considerably larger object before it would actually punch through the atmosphere and, uh, and make a, a crater. Thanks, and one more quick one from me. Uh, the stuff that hits every day, is there a tonnage figure for how much stuff you guys think actually comes into the atmosphere every day, just kind of a ballpark number? Thanks. About 100 tons. Our next question comes from Matt Kaplan with Planetary Society. Helen is open. Hi, this is really for Tim or Don, I think. Uh, my understanding was that for an object that is moving this fast, at least relative to uh, the Earth, that um, it, it presents some special challenges, uh, and that some of the amateur observers, like Lasagra, may be, you know, really well uh, equipped or uh, have sort of optimized their searches for these objects. Is that not necessarily the case? Uh, this is Tim. I can I can handle that. Lasagra, you know, I use the term amateur loosely. This is a bunch of highly skilled people with professional skills that originally were just paying, you know, to run their survey, and they also got a, a Planetary Society grant for the CCD. That's one, one thing to mention. They are currently doing work tracking space debris, which moves much faster than the average near-Earth asteroid along the sky. And so they are set up perfectly to do this kind of work. And, um, you know, the, the translation of amateur into some other languages has caused me some problems at the Minor Planet Center. And I would reiterate that these people are professional skill level people that are um, just unbelievably impressive what these so-called amateurs do. Um, I also need to address one thing. I went back and looked at my data set and no NASA survey had discovery type images of this object. And I suspect it was because it moved through the main survey window extremely rapidly. You know, Don mentioned how fast it's going to move this time across the sky. And this object ended up um, nearly over the pole of the Earth in the sky. And so it was not discovered, uh, not picked up in a NASA survey as a discovery-type image, although I expect it will be this time. Our next question comes from Ken Kramer with Space Flight Magazine. Your line is open. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I have two questions. I was wondering um, about the space-based observations. You mentioned a little bit about the ground base, but I'd like to know if any space-based NASA asset, assets will be looking at this to collect uh, any photos or spectra. And I'm also wondering about uh, the ISS. Where will the ISS be during the closest approach, and are the astronauts going to try and look at it and photograph it? Thanks. Uh, this is Lindley Johnson at NASA headquarters. Uh, uh, I am not aware of any uh, space-based uh, assets that are, are trying to take observations of it. One of the reasons is it's moving uh, so fast uh, through the sky, it, it makes it a little difficult for them uh, to track it. Uh, some of my colleagues uh, may be aware of something, but I'm, I am not aware of anything. And um, the same uh, situation for the ISS. Uh, I, I don't. First of all, I don't think the ISS is positioned right to see it. And again, it uh, it uh, would be a uh, bit of a challenge for them to be able to um, to uh, track it. Our next question comes from Roger Alworth with Chico Enterprise Records. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about the. Uh, the issue of the time frame when these objects are anticipated to make it to Earth. And I know from your previous information, you talked about the Winslow, Arizona crater being of a somewhat similar size and the Russian instant crater being an event similar in size. That's 50,000 years apart, more or less. Is there, is there Earth uh, impact uh, that demonstrates where these things have landed in the past besides these two? Well, uh, this is Don Yeomans again. Uh, the the event uh, that you married, you noted near Winslow, Arizona, that's the meteor crater, of course. That was uh, actually created by a uh, nickel-iron asteroid, uh, which they're very unusual, very rare. So that was uh, sort of the exception to the rule. That one actually punched through the atmosphere, even though it was uh, only about 50 meters in diameter. Um the Tunguska event, uh, as we noted earlier, uh, was an air blast, uh, and since there are far, far more rocky asteroids than iron asteroids, uh, you would expect most of them of the 40 to 50 meter sized objects would create air blasts. 
they wouldn't create uh, craters. So the crater record uh, really does not give us, uh, the Earth's crater record doesn't really give us an estimate of the uh, number of uh, 40 meter sized objects that uh, do, do impact the Earth's atmosphere. Lenway Johnson, that's the headquarters of a follow up on that. Uh, uh, because uh, they're air blast and, uh, uh, you know, blow down uh, uh, trees in a forest like uh, in Tunguska, in, you know, in another hundred years, uh, uh, the evidence of the Tunguska uh, event will have been, been erased uh, because the Earth is a living, living planet and uh, does a pretty good job of covering these kinds of small events up uh, over a few hundred years. Our next question comes from Jackie Goddard with Times of London. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, I'm looking at a figure put out by a group uh, separate to NASA that's seeking to step up um, asteroid technology tracking technologies in the future, um, which states um, that of the million asteroids as large as or larger than DA-14, um, NASA and others have only managed to track less than 10,000. Is that figure correct? And if so, how safe can we really feel that we are on Earth? Um, and just following on from that, um, to what extent is NASA working on future technologies to actually try and deflect an asteroid impact? This is Lindley Johnson at NASA headquarters. Uh, uh, our current uh, count for number of uh, near-Earth objects, uh, near-Earth asteroids that have been detected is uh, uh, just short of uh, 10,000. Uh, 9,500 and, and something, I believe, uh, is the number um, that we found over, uh, well, a concentrated effort of uh, 15 years now. Um, and uh, yeah, that uh, that does probably represent less than 10% of of all the objects that may be out there. It uh, it uh, it takes uh, quite a bit of uh, capability, uh, both in um, uh, sensitivity, uh, their ability to detect uh, uh, these small objects. They're they're very dim, and uh, also time. You have to. Uh, I spend several years uh, uh, surveying the sky as the Earth moves through this population of objects because, uh, uh, you know, most of the time uh, uh, the greater portion of the population is going to be on the other side of the sun from us. Uh, uh, so it takes uh, years of survey effort to uh, pick up the entire population. We uh, are uh, continually looking at uh, uh, more capable systems uh, 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 affordable systems. Uh, we don't have um, uh, all the money uh, in the world to, to do this uh, this kind of work, uh, but uh, we're looking at uh, the most cost-effective uh, systems uh, to uh, improve our capability to detect the objects. It, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an effort that uh, will take another uh, decade or two, even if we have the most uh, most capable Systems that uh, that uh, foreseeable technology would uh, would allow us. Our next question comes from Irene Klotz with Reuters. The line is open. Thank you. I just had a quick follow up from my previous question for Don. Um, I had read that this uh, asteroid, uh, the DA14, was going to be coming back again in 2026. Is that not accurate? And if so, do you guys have a a um, an estimate of a chance of impact on that path. Thanks. Um, yeah, we received some recent observations, so the orbit's been updated a bit. Uh, at one time, there was a chance for a, a non-zero chance for a, a very close encounter in 2023 or 2023, 2026, but uh, the recent observations uh, have all but... Uh, eliminated those uh, very close approach possibilities. Uh, I mentioned that the orbit's going to be changed dramatically as a result of the close approach. Uh, so it uh, doesn't really make uh, any close approaches like the one coming up uh, in the in the decades uh, down the road. And now I would like to turn the call back over to Dwayne Brown. Thank you, Operator. Um, we're going to um, close out at this time, ladies and gentlemen, if there are further questions and if you want to um, reach 
some of the participants, all of our participants here, you can call my office at NASA headquarters, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or the Goddard Space Flight Center, and we'll be setting up uh, follow-up interviews and, of course, making folks available all through the week and uh, certainly on the day of closest approach on February 15th. Again, please get the detailed information and any updates on www.nasa.gov slash flyby. And for our social media folks who are out there, and there are many of them, www.twitter.com slash asteroid watch, and uh, look at the conversation and join the conversation. 